This is Jamda on the go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for a BPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for October 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Barbara Resnick, co-editor-in-chief of Jamda, and Dr. Daniel K.Y. Chan, We're delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Chan, the author of a recent JAMDA article entitled Telemedicine Versus Face-to-Face for Nursing Home Residents with Acute Presentations, a Non-Inferiority Study. So Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program And Barb also co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. She holds the Zipporkin Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and other senior housing communities. Dr. Daniel K.Y. Chan, who is a senior staff specialist and director of aged care and rehabilitation at Bankstown Lidcombe Hospital. This is Australia, uh, in case you were wondering. He's also a conjoint professor of geriatrics at the University of New South Wales, adjunct professor at the University of Western Sydney. He has qualifications in clinical practice, FRACP and FHKCP, research as an MD, and in health services management as an MHA and AFCHSE. And if you're interested in those initials, I know that you can Google them. Uh, Dr. Chan has been involved with many areas of molecular biology, epidemiological, Parkinson's disease, stroke, vascular dementia, and health services-related research. He has over 160 publications in journals, many of these as first author or corresponding author. Among Dr. Chan's more prestigious publication journals are the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, and some top journals in neurology and geriatrics. Additionally, Dr. Chan's Practical Geriatrics 4th Edition, a textbook, has been translated into Chinese and endorsed as China's national teaching material. So very, very impressive uh, uh, CV there. Um, And in addition to our chat with Dr. Chan, your editors have also chosen three articles that we'll be highlighting from the October issue that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. These topics include a paper discussing challenges and issues with death certificates after voluntary stopping of eating and drinking by Takeshi Uemura, MD, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Then there's daytime sleepiness predicts mortality in nursing home residents, findings from the first study by Ronaldo Piovizan from the University of Adelaide, Australia. And finally, changes in personality before and during cognitive impairment by Antonio Terracciano from Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. So, Drs. Chan and Resnick, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Great to be here. 
All right. And Dr. Chan, I, I want to thank you again for getting up really early. I know it's uh, very early in the morning in Australia, so we appreciate that. So uh, we're discussing your article, which I'm sure will be of great interest to many of our listeners, entitled Telemedicine Versus Face-to-Face for Nursing Home Residents with Acute Presentations, a Non-Inferiority Study. So um, maybe you could start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and the team that uh, worked on this study. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm actually a clinician scientist. Uh, I'm, I've been trained as a geriatrician and also in general medicine. I've always been interested in research and um, obtained my uh, doctorate degree uh, some years ago. But I, I also have a, a degree in health administration, higher degree. Um, that's why I'm always interested in exploring new services, model, and new ways of doing things which could be um, just as good as the old way or more efficient. And so my team and I um, are always interested uh, in innovative ways um, to provide services to our patients, including those uh, who live in the nursing homes. There is increasing use of telemedicine in, in recent times, and, and, and it's a very important area, and that's why we decided um, to look uh, further in, into the possibility of using telemedicine um, to treat uh, older people living in nursing homes uh, um, with acute illnesses and see if they are just as good as the face-to-face um, uh, way of uh, providing services. Uh, let me ask on, on the face-to-face, uh, sorry, on the, the telemedicine, what level of technology did uh, did you have available? Uh, was there, uh, like, like for example, was there a stethoscope or, or those types of things? Or uh... Not as advanced. That maybe that's the next step. But we use uh, WhatsApp. Uh, we use um, FaceTime. Uh, we, you know, the, the geriatricians uh, work remotely and therefore saving the traveling time for both the uh, doctor uh, and the patient. However, there is actually a clinical nurse um, who actually attend uh, to the patient, and therefore if anything uh, that needs a stethoscope, the the clinical nurse could actually do it for um, the doctor. So it's not purely, uh, you know, we, you know, we we think maybe the next step is to use those um, uh, electronic stethoscope that can transmit, um, you know, sounds and so on uh, purely. But that would be the next. Step. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess in this case, you have to have at least somebody with some clinical skills to be able to sort of do the physical examination in your stead. But still, you got the visual. Uh, you know, it's it's basically you can look at things that are. Uh, you know, if they have edema or something like that, or a rash, obviously those types of things. Yes, and we also could look at um, medication chart, uh, the observation charts, uh, the, uh, and the blood test results, and they are all transmitted, you know, raw encryption uh, to the doctor. Yeah, for privacy reasons. Good. Well, so and, do you encounter as well? Yeah. Uh, okay, so imaging too. Yeah. So did you mm-hmm. encounter any challenges in conducting this study? Uh, yes, indeed. The uh, study was conducted during the COVID period. In fact, we obtained uh, this. There was a service of face to face that commenced 
uh, from 2013 already, but during the COVID period, the government decided um, to give us extra funding to provide a service during the weekend. But the proviso is we need to look after other area health. That means stopping the workload. So the only way to do it is uh, while telemedicine. Um, you know how during the COVID is, uh, you know, there's high expectation that you need to keep the patients uh, out of the hospital, not let them come in. And the hospital is reserved for the very sick uh, right. people with COVID. And therefore, there's this constant pressure that could you take on uh, extra patients? Um, could you prevent them from coming into the hospital? So this 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 expectation and pressure does actually uh, provide uh, uh, give us a challenging um, situation because uh, we we are doing research right, and if we um, are overwhelmed with uh, clinical uh, work looking after patients, we may not be able to collect the data. And also the, the challenge, another challenge is if we pick the wrong patient to uh, not suitable to be on the program for telemedicine, then it could actually uh, re reduce the effectiveness or the efficiency and the safety of the, the surface. So these are the challenges. Right. Thank you for that. Uh, so uh, maybe what's the, the nutshell kind of take-home message uh, for our listeners? Uh, was it an effective intervention? And, uh, you know, what were your, your findings? Well, the take-home message is if, if, if telemedicine is conducted correctly by skilled uh, clinicians in the right setting, uh, the result it's non-inferior to face-to-face -face in terms of safety. Um, however, patients, uh, so, so that is actually patients are not required to be um, transferred to the hospital uh, and therefore, um, you know, meet the successful criteria of being managed where they are uh, in the nursing home. Uh, however, additional encounters may be required due to a variety of reasons such as investigations, uh, blood tests, x-rays not being available during the weekend. Um, so there's also e efficiency to be gained too just because the, clean, the geriatrician could actually look after uh, that, that another area health that is stopping the workload um, provided. Yeah, not have to drive around to a bunch of different buildings and that sort of thing. Yeah, and many patients do not have to come to hospitals to be seen. So they, these are actually good points. Yeah, that's a huge bonus. Obviously, keeping patients out of the hospital is always a good goal, even when it's not the middle of a pandemic, right? Yeah. So, uh, Barb, any comments or questions for Dr. Chen? Yeah, so I, I think his work is terrific. I, I found a couple of your comments really interesting. One the selection of people and in research of course you have selection criteria but in the real world it's out as you were getting pressure from the real world it sounded like maybe you didn't have that option and uh, certainly i i can feel your pain i do house calls in small assisted living communities and it is just really hard in some people to get that efficient care. 
Um, but I will. I would love to hear your thoughts about um, moving this because I believe you did the study in nursing homes. Yes, correct. Yeah. So um, I'd be curious about your thoughts of transitioning in it, transitioning it to what we refer to as assisted living communities. Um, in other countries, it may be residential housing, that kind of thing, or even home care. Yeah. Well, we are very cautious. We know we should actually start from a safe, a safe environment mm-hmm. where the patients are being monitored by uh, nurses and so on. A nursing home would be a, uh, a very good environment for, uh, for this uh, to be carried out safely because at least the patients are being monitored. If anything happened, uh, which is unexpected, that then there's somebody uh, to monitor. Um, in the community, I think there are challenges. Um, the selection criteria may have to be adjusted uh, according uh, to the individual uh, setting um, because the patient may not be a, a living with someone and the patient may have cognitive impairment and therefore if they're sick, they may not be able to uh, raise the uh, alarm or alert, alert someone um, that they've actually got uh, uh, sick further than um, you know the condition that would initially allow them to be treated at their own home. So these are the challenges that we have to overcome and pilot may need to be done in order to assess uh, the, the set of selection criteria uh, being set for for older people living in a community. Um, there are also other challenges uh, because older people have a lot of background comorbidities. And one uh, bad situation um, can trigger off a whole series of other conditions. As you know, for example, um, the patients uh, who already have walking difficulties uh, if they are delirious or if they are unwell and sick, um, like with urine tract infection and chest infection, they can get deconditioned and they may they may fall, for example. Um, so these uh, complex issues uh, needs to be taken uh, as a whole. It's not as simple as treating a younger adult at home. Um, we are people, we are clinicians who believe both in the efficiency and the quality of care. I think they have to go hand in hand. So if we, uh, we cannot sacrifice the quality of care for the sick or just, um, you know, avoiding hospital care and so on and so forth. So uh, these are the new challenges that uh, we will face if we want to take it further to the community setting. Thank yeah, you. Thank you for that. You know, uh, I, I guess one thing about uh, nursing home is you've got sort of clinicians, at least nurses on the other end, uh, you know, that are right there with the with the patient. That might not always be the case in a in an assisted living where there could just be sort of a med tech or or a non skilled caregiver. Uh, so that is a that is a concern, and even uh, in the U.S. Uh, in nursing homes. CMS has a rule that only one telemedicine visit can be done every 14 days, although for now that's been suspended, at least for uh, through the end of the year. Um, but 
uh, that certainly limits limits the the utility, at least when it comes to billing and that sort of thing. And I, I agree with you, Dr. Chen. It's not something we should just do as a matter of convenience, right? This it needs to be it needs to be safe. But in your study, at least it seems like in this population, it it was safe and effective and uh, prevented hospitalization. So what's not to like about that, right? Yeah, the success rate is uh, in the high ninety percent, ninety eight percent close to. And that's extremely successful. In fact, we are we we are very uh, uh, if efficient as well as at the same time provide good quality of care because the patient doesn't have to um, you know get sick and then have to be transferred to the hospital out of our um, you know uh, sort of uh, expectation or um, you know uh, uh, unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah, ninety-eight percent. That's fantastic. I'm sure that surpassed even your own expectations of what you. You had the patients you faced was only ninety-five percent. You know, in in fact, it's not just non-inferior; it's just slightly better. It hasn't achieved um the 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 significance yet. So we 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 still have to call it not in, inferior. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, any final words before we wrap up your section? Yeah, I the final word is, um, you know, in scientific uh, research, if it is true in one setting, it still has to be proven in uh, in other setting or countries. So we very much welcome uh, people um, trying to replicating it, um, uh, not just for the pure scientific reason that it it needs to be reproduced. Uh, with the same result, but also if it is proven to be useful in other settings, then um, it can be taken on by other countries uh, or in other settings uh, to further benefit um, patients and also reduce the need of older patients um, requiring to be admitted into hospital or being presented into already congested emergency department and have a long wait there. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, well, that's been some great discussion and perspective. Dr. Chan, many thanks for taking the time to get up early and share your expertise with us today on Jamda On The Go and keep up your uh, uh, prolific career as a researcher and clinician. We really appreciate your work. It is both an honor uh, and privilege to do so. Thank you so much for inviting me. This episode will return after this special message. Join AMDA on November 17th, 2023 for a brand new virtual symposium, Finding Your Value in Evolving Payment Models. Speakers will tackle issues such as defining value-based reimbursement models, evolution and trends of traditional CPD coding, impact of diagnosis coding and documentation on PDPM and value-based models ICD-10HCC scoring, Value-Based Medicine Reimbursement Perspective, The Ground View. Ask the experts, where are your opportunities in value-based reimbursement? Visit paltc.org for details and to register. And now back to our program. So our second paper for review is Challenges and Issues with Death Certificates After Voluntary Stopping of Eating and Drinking by Takeshi Uemura, MD, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. In this article, the authors present an example case of BSED, or voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, where the death certificate was issued and it listed suicide as the manner of death by the medical examiner. 
So this uh, group of authors describes the challenges and issues related to death certificates in VSED cases. Since there is no clear consensus on whether VSED is a natural death or suicide, the death certificate may need to be referred to a medical examiner in many jurisdictions, potentially resulting in suicide being the designated manner of death, which is, seems unfortunate. Such designations can understandably cause reluctance in providers and institutions that might otherwise support patients who choose VSED, but are concerned about the legal or maybe reputational implications of enabling a quote-unquote suicide at their facility or under their care. A suicide designation also can contribute to moral distress in healthcare staff, and it can impose emotional and practical burdens on the patient's surviving loved ones, including perhaps uh, insurance issues, life insurance. In contrast, in some of the jurisdictions where medical aid in dying has been legalized, there are laws that require the physician to list natural death as the manner of death without involving medical examiners. So three approaches were recommended in this study to address challenges and issues associated with death certificates after VSED. First, navigate the existing system with guidance developed by professional organizations like AMDA. Two, make a legal exemption. And three, change the death certification system. And so debate involving a wide variety of experts seems to be warranted on this issue. So I would simply say at this point, I think it's really important to be sure that we all know our state regulations around completing a death certificate. I know our regulations in Maryland is a 300-page booklet, which honestly hasn't been updated for many, many years. Um, but that we really need to be aware of that and may even need to talk with the state about how to best address this issue. I mean, it's definitely quite challenging. And my guess is that most people um, just put some reason for death in there because of discomfort or whatever other reasons we have. Who knows what the future will bring? Um, but certainly it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's an interesting sort of bioethical topic that probably a fair number of our listeners may have grappled with at one time or another. I mean, if somebody has a stroke and they can't swallow anymore and they don't want a feeding tube, I mean, they die of, you know, essentially stopping eating and drinking. Um, and uh, first of all, listeners, I just want to ask you who complete death certificates to please make them as accurate as possible. I, I see so many death certificates that are completed in a really careless or haphazard way. And, you know, these are important documents uh, for, you know, for families, but also for the sort of public health system and so on. But anyway, I live in a state where medical aid in dying is legal and the manner of death is always stated as natural causes. Uh, and, and the the actual cause of death is um, always whatever their terminal condition was that uh, prompted them to avail themselves of medical aid in dying. Uh, now, I'd certainly say that with VSED, uh, death is much more natural than it is with uh, uh, with you know swallowing a handful of uh, of lethal meds. Uh, it's also obviously much slower um, and. You know, people don't die of an overdose with VSED. They die of essentially hypovolemic shock, right, or multi-organ failure, or related to hypotension. 
Uh, and so I've known clinicians to use a variety of immediate causes of death for death certificates, you know, the uh, hypovolemic shock due to whatever their underlying serious medical condition was that prompted their decision to uh, to stop eating and drinking. But um, yeah, different states have different laws and regulations. As you said, Barb, listeners should be sure that they're following their own state requirements or regulations. But to the extent we can avoid having our patients' families be burdened with the word suicide on their loved one's death certificate, we should certainly make every effort to do that. And if nobody's already working on this, I'm thinking maybe AMDA can help spearhead a collaborative effort with other stakeholder professional societies to come to consensus on how best to certify these VSED cases. Uh, all right, well, the next paper for review is from another author from Down Under. Uh, this paper is called Daytime Sleepiness Predicts Mortality in Nursing Home Residents, Findings from the First Study by Ronaldo Piovazan from the University of Adelaide, Australia. And can I just start out by saying, uh, if daytime sleepiness predicts mortality, I might be in trouble, uh, in spite of my uh, last remaining vice, which is uh, uh, caffeine. But anyway... This study investigated associations between participants' characteristics and excessive daytime sleepiness, or EDS, the ability of the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which probably many of our listeners are familiar with, or ESS scores, uh, and EDS and ESS severity levels to predict mortality at 12 months of follow-up, and the optimal cutoff for the Epworth Sleepiness Scale to predict mortality among nursing home residents. So this was an ambitious uh, prospective cross-sectional study. Who uh, the, the subjects were older adults residing in 12 nursing homes in South Australia. The researchers collected baseline characteristics and excessive daytime sleepiness using the ESS and collected 12-month mortality data. A logistical regression analysis was done. So a total of 500 residents were included with a mean age of 87, about three quarters female, about a quarter with severe dementia, 57% with depression, and 64% with polypharmacy. Hmm, maybe they do a little better in Australia than we do in their nursing home residence on polypharmacy. Anyway, almost a third were considered to have excessive daytime sleepiness, with this being rated as severe uh, in 12% of the participants. Of interest, malnutrition uh, with an adjusted odds ratio of 2.02, heart failure with 2.85, Parkinson's 2.16, and severe dementia with a very high uh, odds ratio of 8.57. These were all associated with excessive daytime sleepiness, and there was an associated reduced survival observed among these participants with these characteristics. So for the conclusions and implications, uh, excessive daytime sleepiness can help predict mortality risk and is associated with other age-related comorbidities in nursing home residents. And so screening for excessive daytime sleepiness is a simple strategy that we can use to identify nursing home residents who may be at higher risk of adverse outcomes. And this should trigger an assessment for reversibility or you know treatable causes and or conversations about end-of-life care and uh, you know planning accord accordingly and realistic expectations and so on. Barb? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think this is interesting given how much of this excessive sleepiness we actually do see. Yeah. 
being said, it feels like the focus on disease doesn't really get maybe to some of the other issues like boredom, inability to engage in anything because of cognitive changes and issues around perfusion, which may be really the underlying cause of the death that happens ultimately. So it's, it is interesting to think about. It's almost like doing genetic testing to tell you when you're going to die. Uh, now it's just if you're falling asleep during the day, you're going to die. But, um, you know, the, the big question is, what can we do about it? Or what should we do about it? Maybe it's an ethical issue. And sometimes it's really just an assurance for patients and residents and their families that, you know, this may be related to all of these things, diseases essentially, and not to worry. Um, but I do worry a lot about the boredom. If any one of us was bored, uh, we'd go to sleep and or if your brain can't connect to anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the day lasts a long time if you're living in a nursing home. And, uh, you know, many of our residents do nap during the day, uh, and part of which may be because they're having non-restorative sleep at night, you know, because the nurse is going in at 2 a.m. and checking their vitals. And, you know, then they get startled and then they can't go back to sleep. And, uh, you know, there may be other environmental factors. Uh, and like you said, boredom. And I, I mean, I like a daytime nap from time to time. And, uh, uh, in spite of the fact that I go to bed kind of early and get up kind of late, I'm just, I'm a very good sleeper. Uh, this article worries me a little like that article we discussed some months ago about uh, a worse life expectancy for people who sleep more than eight or nine hours a day. But like you said, we wonder what kinds of interventions might be effective in reducing excessive daytime sleepiness, you know, uh, early morning sunshine uh, exposure, exercise early in the day caffeine or maybe even more potent psychostimulants, uh, obviously treating sleep apnea to the extent that's tolerated, uh, avoiding napping, you know, or encouraging residents to avoid napping to help ensure that they are able to sleep at night. And, and would those interventions, if successful, reduce the apparent increased mortality that, that is associated with excessive daytime sleepiness? So I think this would be a really ripe area for some additional work, uh, you know, about the correlation and whether it's it's reversible or not. So um, our last paper for review today is Changes in Personality Before and During Cognitive Impairment. This is by Antonio Terracciano, MD, from Florida State University et al. Uh, and this longitudinal observational study used prospective self-reported data to examine the trajectories of personality traits before and during cognitive impairment. Older adults in the health and retirement study were assessed for cognitive impairment and completed a measure of the five major personality traits every four years from 2006 to 2020. So a long, long spell. Uh, and the N here was about 22,000, uh, of whom 5,500 uh, did have cognitive impairment. Uh, and there were uh, over 50,000 personality and cognitive assessments done during this time frame. So really a large-scale study done over a long a long spell. So multi-level modeling was done to examine changes before and during cognitive impairment, accounting for demographic differences and normative age-related trajectories. So the findings here 
suggested that before detected cognitive impairment, extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness decreased slightly. So maybe like a precursor of uh, uh, cognitive decline. And there was no significant change in neuroticism or openness. Uh, During cognitive impairment, faster rates of change were found for all five personality traits. Uh, And here, neuroticism increased while extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness declined, which seems fairly intuitive. Uh, Anyway, the authors concluded, and this won't surprise any of our listeners, that cognitive impairment is associated with a pattern of detrimental personality changes across the preclinical and clinical stages. The results also suggest an acceleration of personality change with the progression to frank dementia, which may lead to behavioral, emotional, and other psychological symptoms commonly observed in people with cognitive impairment and full-on dementia. So obviously none of that is going to come as a shock to any of our listeners. Barb? Yeah, I I also found that it was sort of nice to see documented data for what we see clinically, what we hear from caregivers and family, and what we deal with ourselves as our own uh, family or loved ones change. I just have to throw out there, though, fortunately, we also see sometimes, hear sometimes, and know sometimes that personalities and behavior improve. And I I think seeing those situations and capitalizing those and helping families understand that these personality changes do happen and can go in either direction are really important. Um, because it's hard for families to sometimes understand it. So it's nice to have the data that supports those changes. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting that you say that because there certainly is a wide variety of these sort of evolution of personality changes we see in clinical practice with dementia. My grandmother, for example, once her dementia got beyond the point where she was aware of it anymore, during which time she was absolutely... Well, she was very difficult and angry. Um, but after she forgot that, uh, she became much more agreeable and open. I mean, I could uh, take her a, a, car- a Cadbury Caramello bar and she would have a bite of it and say, oh, this is so delicious. And I would think, gosh, you know, she's happier now than I saw her throughout most of her uh, older adult life. So, uh, but uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, my grandmother was in a distinct minority and the much more frequent trajectory is where, say, a nun who is, you know, always gentle, kind, very well-spoken will turn into this raging, paranoid person who curses so wholeheartedly that it can make a construction worker blush, right? That's And that's also, you know, very disturbing to families, as you said. Um, I guess the one saving grace is that once people get to a very advanced stage of, of dementia, usually a lot of that sort of uh, melts away and, and they are more passive uh, for the most part. But we don't get to choose the trajectory our uh, our loved ones or ourselves get, you know, if and when we're stricken with dementia. So, Barb, anything else on this? Is there something practical we can glean from this work for our clinical practices? No, I, I, I think the most practical thing is to help families and to work with them through the process of change, which you raised, Carl. And it's really important because people's behavior through dementia is also going to change. They may peak with bad behavior or 
I, bad behavior is not a good way to it's, describe it, but challenging situations or even hurtful situations for families. And yeah. these may really, really get better over time. Yeah, I, I always find it useful to say, you know, that that looks like your mom, but, you know, the person that's saying those awful things right now, that, you know, it's not really, it's not personal. It's not about you. It's, you know, I just try to step back and, and uh, you know, just imagine what a hard time that person is actually going through. Yeah, difficult stuff, but uh, but meaningful and important work that we all do. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this Jam Down the Go podcast. Uh, Thanks again to Dr. Chan for appearing, and thank you as always, Barb. Uh, and thanks to our staff from Elsevier and from AMDA, whose efforts continue to generate one great issue. JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, formerly JAMDA, the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. One great issue after another. Please keep them coming, Barb. And uh, listeners, please take a look at the October 2023 issue. So references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining a BPLM, pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.